be in Acts chapter 17. One thing I love is that Christianity is based upon reason. Our faith is a reasonable faith. It's established on facts. Things that have happened, things God has said. And some place reason and faith in opposition to each other, like they're opposite ends of a spectrum where there's facts, and then on the other side there's faith. But that's a false dichotomy. That's just not true. We place faith in things we choose to believe in, and we have reasons for believing those things. We see this world that God's given us, the order around us. Um, God's given us the ability to reason and a conscience to know right from wrong. And God has given us his word using human language so that we can know him. Things that we can read, we can verify, we can check, we can investigate. And once we've done that, we can come to a conclusion that this is either the word of God or it is pie in the sky in myths and fables. And everyone needs to decide where they're going to place their faith, in the words or philosophies of men or in what God has said in his word. Some believe that science can determine all the answers that we need. But it falls woefully short of answering the questions like, why do we exist? What is our purpose? How can we determine truth? The, the philosophy tries to weigh in on this, but it can't even justify itself. It can't save. And then God speaks. And it's so great that he's given us ears to hear and eyes to see. And even without those faculties, people like Helen Keller, uh, the American, she came to the conclusion that she knows God exists because of the world around her. Not being able to see it or to hear anything. That's phenomenal. The God that we serve is amazing. So Acts 17 is where we'll be. Let's pray and then we will jump in. Thank you, Lord God, that you are an awesome God. That you you have placed order and design everywhere around us. We see symmetry, great beauty, and life. Life, it, it only comes from you, Lord, and your wisdom, it's great. I pray you would open our eyes to see you and behold your glory today that we'd realize the things you've said were for a purpose, and it's for us to lay to heart. Thank you that you love us enough to correct us, to direct us in the way we should go, and to help us live in the way that pleases you. Lord, we just bow before you today. We exalt your name. We praise you in one accord in Jesus' name. Amen. In our passage, Paul and Silas, they are continuing their missionary journey despite opposition and trials, and they headed west from Philippi after their experience with uh, the the demon-possessed girl, the fortune-telling girl, and how she was delivered, and then their subsequent beatings and arrests, the earthquake, people coming to faith. It was a, a marvelous time. And I have a map to help you visualize the distance they traveled. And they began this journey from Antioch and headed up to, if you look at Asia, big words, Antioch, Troas, Neapolis, Philippi. That's where we finished last week's message, up at the very top. And then they're going to head west towards Thessalonica, Berea, and then down to Athens, which is in Greece. And they started this long journey not knowing exactly where they were going. And they financed it to themselves. It's quite remarkable that they didn't have it all planned out because if we planned a missionary trip, we would likely have return 
tickets, dates on those tickets. We'd know when I'm going to the, when I need to be there at the airport, when I'm going to be flying and arriving, how I'm going to go from here to there, how long I'm going to be there, what I'm going to do, and then when I'm going to return. All that's planned. But for these men, it wasn't um, planned in that way. They were being led by the Spirit. They were financing the journey themselves. As God provided, they went. And it wasn't a, a maybe a, a great career move, but it was a lifestyle of following Jesus and being led by the Holy Spirit. And this is a great challenge to us, whether you're a, full, a full-time minister or not, to ask, is serving Jesus my life? For them, it was life. This was life for them. Uh, and that may it be so for us, that wherever we go, whatever we're doing, we're, we're switched on to the fact that God is awesome and he has a purpose for us in our current situation where he's, he's leading us somewhere and he's wanting to use us for his glory. And are we so convinced of his reality and of the truth of his word that I'm willing to follow him at any cost? Verse 1 of Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. As their custom was, they went to the synagogue of the Jews, and they presented the message of the gospel. It says, for three Sabbaths, Paul reasoned with them through the scriptures. So there's this discussion taking place, and he used their Bible, the Torah, to show them that the Messiah, he first had to suffer and die and rise from the dead. That that was really part of his ministry, and that's something they didn't understand. They had an idea of who the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one that God would send, what he, his identity, how he would be, what he would do, that he would be a son of David, that he would restore Israel uh, to its former glory. To this day, Orthodox Jews believe that Jesus, or not Jesus, the Christ will be a man of the tribe of David, not God, and that he will rebuild the temple. That's how they believe they will know who the Messiah is, is when this temple is rebuilt, the one responsible for that, which we know to be the Antichrist. So that's interesting. Um, or it's suggested very strongly in Scripture. And it says some of the people were persuaded. So he's persuading them, reasoning with them from the Scriptures. This is what your Scriptures say, and this is what must happen. He demonstrated it. They shared so much in common that they had this shared ancestry, they believe they already had things established, right? They believed that there was a God. We don't always have that established in our conversations with people today. They may not even be there. But they believed there was a God. They believed that God had created the world. They believed that God had spoken to Abraham and had given him promises and that the nation had been birthed from Egypt out of slavery, brought them through the desert, the Red Sea, and brought them into Canaan where he established them. They had all these things. They were tracking with them. They were in agreement. And then he said, this Jesus that I'm preaching is the Christ. It's not like Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. Christ is a title. It's who he is, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. It's saying, this is the one. 
that God has promised to send who will save people from their sins, who will redeem people. He provides this compelling evidence, but not everyone believes. Ever done that? He provided some compelling evidence and people didn't believe? Well, that's what happened to Paul. Verse 5, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. As common as it was for Paul to go into the synagogue and preach to the Jews, envious Jews stirred up a mob to oppose and seeking to undermine the things that Paul spoke, the truth. We don't know exactly why they envied them, but really, they were envious of the attention and honor given to Jesus because that's who Paul was proclaiming to them. And they liked the position of authority they held. They coveted the praise and the honor of men. The city was soon stirred into an uproar, and they brought these false accusations against them. They wanted to bring Paul and Silas before the rulers, but when they went to the house where they thought they were staying, they couldn't find them. Instead, they took Jason, who was a Christian, and other believers and dragged them before the council. And they play the political card. We see that Christianity has been politically incorrect from the beginning. And they say, the men who have turned the world upside down, they're here too. It's these people. And they threw them under the bus, really. Jesus didn't turn the world upside down. He turned it right side up. Have you ever seen one of those uh, artistic displays where the painter's kind of attacking the canvas and you're like, what is he doing? And you have no idea. And Like, I don't have, I'm amazed when I see someone who can paint well. It just blows my mind. How do you do that? I mean, I know, I know how to paint a wall, but to paint something that looks real with texture and color, it's phenomenal. But they're throwing paint and, and then sun, and everyone's like, okay, that's good. Cause they step back like I'm done. But then they flip it over and you're like, whoa, it's a face or some landscape that I, didn't see before, it, but I needed I needed that reorienting of the painting for me to see it clearly, and that's what Paul did through the scriptures. They had the Torah, they had the law, and they had an idea of what it meant. It was almost like looking at an ink blot for them. I don't understand ink blots. I feel like I'm I'm trying to say what it looks like, but I'm hopeless. Uh, have you guys played that game, ink blots? Yeah. I, I don't know that I'd recommend it, but maybe maybe it's cool. If you have it, you can let me know after what you think. But the way that Paul held forth the scriptures, people saw the Messiah clearly for the first time. They realized that is Jesus. But the rulers were happy to have the painting upside down. They were glad to keep it as it was because they knew, they had their idea of what it said and what was important and they like the honor from men. God reversed the natural order that death could produce life. That we could go from sinning to be a saint and a child of God. And that's so awesome. 
Death is the natural order of things, but Jesus has reversed it all by dying in our place. They continue to accuse Jason and the others. They're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. This is a very familiar argument to what was accused of Christ um, when he was arrested, and it was a very effective one. We see here that it, it disturbed the crowd and the rulers. This is hardly the case, seeing that Christians ought to be the best citizens. God's commanded for us to be praying for those in authority, to be to give taxes to whom they are due, and to render to God what is due to him. So as part of our honoring Christ, we are to honor those in authority. We should be good citizens. We should be um, righteous in the way we live. Though Jason and the Christians had not committed a crime, they were forced to post bail and they were let go. That's what that was, a security. Verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and not a few of the Greeks prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. Due to the volatile situation in Thessalonica, it was agreed upon that Paul and Silas would go. We see that Timothy was with them as well. And they were sent away by night to Berea, some 72 Ks away. They went to the synagogue of the Jews, as was their custom. And it says that they were more fair-minded or noble in Berea than Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness. They didn't immediately push back against something strange or different, something unfamiliar. They took it in. They considered it, and daily they looked through the scriptures themselves and confirmed the things that were said. They were willing to listen and to consider, strange though it was, talking about the resurrection of the dead. It's been said that truth can bear examination. It applies to what we believe and what others believe as well. Does does anyone here feel a bit threatened when someone brings a contrary view to your own. I think it's very natural to feel so. But instead of being threatened, the people in Berea, they were willing to listen, willing to lay it to heart, but then they went to the scriptures. So they're a good example to us. They went to the scriptures to confirm the truth of what was said. Many deceivers, the Bible says, have gone into the world. Deception and divisiveness often go together. Have you seen that to be the case? When there's a deception, it creates division, and it leads to isolation. We're to maintain the position of being inclusive to everyone. Anybody can become a child of God if you desire. We we should seek the unity of the body of Christ, but we're still to maintain the exclusive claims of the gospel and what Jesus has said, to uphold the truth of God's word. Instead of being caught up in a fad about a particular Bible interpretation, check the origin of the doctrine. If there's a new doctrine, something that's supposedly new, see how where it came from. 
Where did it, where was it born out of? Look into the history of it. Because really there's nothing new under the sun. New interpretations are often old deceptions. They're just repackaged, uh, in a way that is pleasing to us. Let's hold the truth that we've assured of from the scripture and be like the Bereans who were willing to listen, willing to consider. In light of what Paul and Silas preached, it says many of the Jews, the Greeks, and prominent women believed. They had a receptive heart. They were willing to search the scriptures, and they were convinced and believed in Jesus as Lord. The the ministry of the word was so effective in Berea that the Jews who had started the mob in Thessalonica heard about it. Isn't that awesome? You say something in one room to a group of people, and 72 Ks away, they hear about it. What? They're preaching that doctrine? And they were so committed to try to stop it, they come all the way to stir up another mob and start another problem. That is determination. That is dedication. Praise the Lord that when God's word ministers to a heart and when the Holy Spirit is present, no power of Satan or hell can undermine or undo what God has done. What God does will stand. Let's continue to be persistent, strengthened and led by the Spirit. Paul later wrote this in 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We can be discouraged when we see that people are not receptive to the word. But Paul was not discouraged by that because he viewed people through the lens of the resurrection. That's the power that he was handling when he put forth the gospel. That this is the power that can raise a dead person to life. That's how strong God's word is. And let's lay that to heart. Let's realize we're dealing with an almighty, living, risen Savior. He's the one that we're preaching. It's not just an idea or a concept. He is real. He is alive. And he's able to transform lives of anyone who will believe in him. He's able to raise the dead to life. It's ironic that Paul wrote that while he was chained. He was imprisoned. And many of his letters that were written were just personal letters he wrote to someone else. Okay, so it's a, a personal letter. It's not like a public letter where you could just put it out on the internet and anyone could read it. He, he wrote it down, one copy, sent it to one person, led by the Holy Spirit, and that has become the scripture for us. Now, the biblical canon is closed. People don't write new books of the Bible today. But may it be that even in our communication, we're so filled with the Spirit of God and led by the Spirit that lives can be touched and changed by the things that we write, by the things that we speak, that we could have an impact, not because of us, but because of God's Word and His Spirit that is working through us. He was writing, like Paul did not have the internet, he did not have electricity, no email, he lived in an idolatrous and secular culture 
where Nero, one of the most wicked rulers of all time, even by Roman standards, was in rule. And here we are, reading the words of God, which is so amazing. So let's not limit God. Let's just ask yourself, do I serve a living God? Is my God alive? Is he powerful? And if we believe that, that will change the way we approach speaking to people about him or the way we see the world. After those rabble-rousing Jews from, came from Thessalonica, it was determined that Paul needed to go. Silas and Timothy would remain. Their plan was to keep ministering to those willing folks at Berea while Paul would put some distance between him and the mob. And They're really observing the scripture. In Matthew 10.23, Jesus said, When they persecute in this city, flee to another. It's not cowardly to flee when Jesus commands you to do so. There is a place to stand your ground, but there's also a time to flee. Paul didn't leave because he was afraid of being arrested or tortured, chained, or even killed for the sake of the gospel. His life bears witness to that, right? He kept going right back to them. They stoned him. He goes right back into the city after he was left for dead to continue preaching the same gospel. So there was no there was no fear of death. There was no fear of pain in this man. But he feared God, and it was time for him to leave, so he did. It's encouraging to me that as Christians, we don't have to have the last word. You ever feel compelled, like, you know, I have the truth, I, I need to say, I need to finish this. <laughs> like, they started this conversation, but I'm going to finish it with the, the wisdom of God or something. I'm going to shut them down. <laughs> And, and we feel like we're, we're almost betraying the Lord to not be standing up there and combative almost with people. But when we're, we're being baited into a quarrel or a debate, we can turn our backs and walk away. It's not a sign of weakness to do so uh, as we're led by the Spirit. If God tells you to say something now, then that is cowardice if we walk away. Pride digs in its heels, but those led by the Spirit, we're free. We're free to speak, and we're free to walk away. Out of love for God and for these people to whom we speak, we should speak the truth in love. God's gave us a mouth. But my daddy used to always say he's given you twice as many ears, so you should listen twice as much as you speak. And that's still something I'm working on. And, and it doesn't rely upon us either because God has already spoken. His word is absolute and final. He's already spoken. We don't need to debate it. There's really nothing to debate because God's word has spoken. He is true and, and he will, his word will endure long before, long after those dissenters are wiped away from this planet. His word remains. So we can look to him and trust him. Acts 17 verse 15. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Paul was given a ride. There were some who conducted him to Athens. That's a distance of about 275 Ks. 
it's not really known whether he went by sea or by land. It says that he went to the sea. It doesn't necessarily mean he traveled by sea. So, not really sure about that one. But we do know he arrived at Athens. It was an ancient city famous for philosophy, democracy, architecture, the Parthenon, which was the temple in the Athenian Acropolis. I've got a couple of pictures for you, just to put it into context. It's a World Heritage Site to this day. It's quite a, quite an impressive thing, really. So the Athenian Acropolis, that's actually the plateau. It's like the, I guess the whole area. And the temple is the Parthenon. And that would be where Artemis likely was worshipped. And there's another slide I have of the Areopagus. Now, this is the place where Paul gave his address that we are going to learn about. So this is the view of the Areopagus from the Acropolis. All right. So if you're on that mount, that raised area, you're looking down. This is where Paul gave his address. And that was a really important um, legal, like any laws would be talked about there. Um, it was, if you were brought there, it could be very bad for you if you were on the wrong side of the law. So we'll get into that a little bit. The UNESCO website, it says, Beginning in 6th century BC, myths and beliefs gave rise to temples, altars, and votives corresponding to an extreme diversity of cults, which have brought to us the Athenian religion in all its richness and complexity. Athena was venerated as the goddess of the city. Athena Polias as the goddess of war. Athena Promachos. The goddess of victory, Athena Nike, so it's Nike, interesting, the goddess of victory, Nike, and the protective goddess of crafts, Athena Ergene. So there's all these cults and idolatry that was rife in that city. And that's something that Paul noticed. He was stirred up, he was um, exasperated how the city was completely given over to idolatry. He, the whole city is overshadowed by this massive temple, but in the streets, in the shops, in homes, people are wearing these things. There is just idolatry everywhere. Verse 17 says, Because the idolatry is rife, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. He spoke to Gentile and Jewish worshipers in the synagogue, but he expanded his scope as well to talk to just randoms he would meet at the, the shops. Like he daily, he was just running into people and talking about the idolatry in the place and who, who the real God is, the God that he served. He wasn't standing on a platform, but he reasoned with people individually. In our impatience to get the word out to a lot of people at once, we can miss those one-to-one -one opportunities that God gives us. Notice that Paul sought to reason with people. He wasn't just preaching at them. He was reasoning with them. So there was an exchange of ideas. They would say something. He would respond to that. He would say something. They would respond. So there was this interchange going on. Valuing the person, not just what I have to say. And in our interactions, may we be good listeners. 
Verse 18, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know this new doctrine is of what you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. So the Areopagus, as I was saying, um, it was a place that had a council. There was a council appointed of blameless, upright men who made decisions there. And they had the authority to make judgments about all matters of religion and piety. All the philosophies, what was good and bad in religion, they made the decisions on those things. And there were these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, people with very different views of life. The Epicureans were devoted to seeking pleasure, comfort, a simple life. They did not believe in the afterlife. Uh, an Epicurean website that I saw, it said they held rational hedonistic ethics that emphasized moderation of desires and cultivation of friendship. They sought happiness. They wanted to avoid anxiety and pain. And feelings were the basis of their truth. So because of the way they felt, they, you know, a bad feeling was to be avoided. Good feelings were be, to be pursued. And, and there was a good feeling that came from doing good. And if you had too much of a good thing, that was possible. So you didn't want to go fully into it like a hedonist where you're just given over completely to seeking pleasure because in the end that can be negative too. So they tried to find this this middle ground of letting feelings govern their choices. The Stoics, they had almost an opposite philosophy. They held to fate and determinism. They didn't believe that we were just a random assortment of atoms. They, they were like, well, everything's been determined. Instead of following a feeling, I am going to make a logical decision, and I will use self-control to develop clear thinking, good outcomes, calm, freedom from suffering. So instead of seeking pleasure, anything that caused pleasure, that was put aside and replaced with thoughts. Rational thinking. They reasoned that not not everything they could control, but what they could control, they would in a positive way. The Epicureans and the Stoics, they were trying to reach the same place, really. Avoiding anxiety and pain, seeking happiness and contentment, but in opposite ways. And those philosophers who encountered Paul were left a bit confused, not really sure what to think. Some of them called him a babbler, which, as you might imagine, was no compliment. Uh, the Greek, it means to be a seed picker, sponger, loafer, or gossip. Like, who's this loafer? You know, this lazy guy just spouting off this rubbish, nitpicking. What, what is this about? And they say, well, maybe he's speaking about foreign gods that we haven't heard of before, and whether to expose him as a fool or out of curiosity, they brought him to the Areopagus and they asked him to explain more fully. So this is like a courtroom, a grand jury. This is a pressure situation. And the people in Athens, it says in verse 21, the Athenians, the foreigners who were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. They loved hearing about new things. 
It wasn't long before the shine of the new thing wore off and they were looking for the next new thing. Everything was, if it was new, it was novel. It was exciting. But then they were on to the next. It's kind of like us if we're going through our Facebook feed or something. It's like, what's something new? You know, scroll, scroll, scroll. Oh, nothing new. Ten minutes later, oh, still nothing new. Why am I doing this? It's a good question to ask. Why am I doing this? Adam Clark, he wrote this, The itch for news, which generally argues a worldly, shallow, or unsettled mind, is wonderfully prevalent. Even ministers of the gospel, negligent of their sacred function, are become in this sense Athenians, so that the book of God is neither read nor studied with half the avidity and spirit as a newspaper. So it can be that we can be more into the news, what's new, than what even God has said. We may not have shrines to Athena in abundance, but our culture, we can say, resembles that of Athens very well. We have those who rely upon ethics to make their decisions. We have those who are very, very much following their feelings and their hearts. We have those that are atheistic and believe in, in their own morality as absolute. We can be those who are always sharing a new thing or always looking for something new to, to excite us. Verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also, we are also his offspring. Paul addressed the philosophers and those Areopagites quite differently than he did the Jews in the synagogue. He adapted the message to suit his hearers, but he did not change the message. He did not soften the blow of God's word or the truth of the resurrection. And he offered it without apology. Just laid it out there. I like that. Having re- observed their religious bent, he said, Hey, I was passing through your city and looking at all these idols. You guys are really into your religion. But I noticed one caught my attention, the one to the unknown God. You guys are even worshiping gods that you don't know about. Like you have all these gods you know about. But then you're like, well, just in case we're not worshiping one that can do us some good, we need to worship this unknown God too. We'll just throw them all together. I mean, there's so many. Just chuck them all in this one basket, give an offering, and that's covered. Matthew Henry, he said, it's observable that there where human learning most flourished, idolatry most abounded. Have all this idolatry. Paul begins with, and, and everything he says is very contrary to what they believed. 
We have to re realize that. He's not preaching to the choir in any way. He's saying things that would be very confronting to those listening. He starts with a biblical account of creation, how God made the world, how God, one God, made all living things, and how he created man. And he wasn't to be worshipped like um, something made by man or by art or man's devising, that here's something that I make and we bow down to it. And he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need a temple. He doesn't need uh, blood sacrifices to be pleased. And he says that all nations, they have come from the bloodline of one man, first with Adam, then with Noah after the flood. And he said, God's not some random assortment of Adam's. He is a God who can be sought and known. It's not some ethereal construct. He's a real person, and he has created us. Then he quotes from their own poets, Erastus of Cilicia, who had said this around 270 B.C., and there's others that he could be mentioning as well. So he's masterfully quoting their own poets to say, see, your poets even allude to what I'm saying as true. Continuing verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. Having been created by God, they were mistaken if they believed that God was like the elements of the earth that could be shaped by man's hands. You would agree that a painting, no matter how lifelike, is that's a painting of a person, is really nothing like that person. Inasmuch as it's the image of the person, but it cannot see or talk or think or reproduce or really do anything, right? It looks just like him. Well, it may look like him, but it's definitely not him. There's a big difference between the person and the painting. A far cry. And if we cannot do justice to represent man that's fashioned from the dust of the earth, how can man fashion the likeness of the everlasting God? How is that possible? So he's reasoning with them. He's saying, think about this, guys. You know, there's people who are trying to devise a self-replicating machine which is a very interesting concept, which is something that God has designed on a molecular level in our bodies to do, which is phenomenal, that a cell can reproduce itself. So they're trying to create a machine whose only purpose is to remake itself. So they have worked with this, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's a, it's basically a 3D printer that can print up all of its own parts. Of course it needs a person to actually put those parts together and tell it what to do through a computer. But they're like, well, we're getting closer to having a machine that can reproduce itself. It would be a cosmic leap to go from a self-replicating machine to a machine that can create its creator, replicate its creator, like it's just, whoa, impossible. For ages, people worshipped the work of their own hands. They made something and they said, this is worthy of worship. And they bowed down before it, offering even their children 
on those altars. And God had every right to judge those ancient people as he did in the days of Noah. He had every right to judge those in Athens because of their great wickedness and idolatry. But he's patient and long-suffering. And he sent a man named Paul and many other saints who went and showed the way of salvation. And that the coming of Jesus Christ has created a new condition. The God who created all things, he sent his son and he requires a response from everyone in light of that. Because he says, God creates, he now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Some really critical points in here. Repentance from sin, resurrection of the dead, judgment of the world. These are all very key points to the gospel. Can't uh, fudge on any of those. Repentance, do you know what it means? It means a change of mind that results in a change of choices, change of lifestyle, turning from sin and instead doing the right thing. For instance, if Jesus said, you have heard it said that if you look with lust on a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Quoting that or agreeing with, okay, that's true. That's not repentance. Repentance is when you say, wow, if that's a sin, that's something I'm guilty of. And that's something I'm, I still continue to do. Therefore, because I'm sorry for having offended God, I confess that as sin. I'm going to cease doing that. And I'm going to instead start doing what's right. I'm going to honor God. Instead, what we can do is say, well, I'm going to get rid of temptations. I'm going to get those out of my life, which is a fine thing to do. But the heart hasn't been dealt with. The mind hasn't been renewed. So we need a new heart. And we need to turn from that wickedness and instead do what's right. God commands all men everywhere to repent, not just from idolatry, but me too, because it's all man everywhere to repent. There are always things we can repent of. That means you and me. The resurrection of the dead, it not only proves Jesus' power over sin and death, but it confirms that God has appointed a day of judgment for everyone. And this was something they could look into and say, did someone really rise from the dead? Where are the facts? Where's the evidence? And they could. They could look at the eyewitness accounts, and we have that right here in the Word of God. But there were over 500 people that saw Jesus at once. And I love the fact they took so much care in making sure the tomb was secure that had the confirmed dead body of Jesus in it. They... They made it basically impenetrable, impossible for anyone to pull the bait and switch. And we have that evidence now. The resurrection of Jesus is not myth, a fable. It's based on infallible proofs, many eyewitnesses. And the standard of judgment that we will be judged according to is not according to philosophy or ethics or feelings, but according to God's righteousness, the standard that Jesus maintained his whole life. When asked what were the two greatest commandments or what's the greatest commandment, Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And even if those are the only two commandments God has given us, can we say with a clear conscience 
that we have always kept them without fail. It's like, nope. I failed on both of those. A lot. <laughs> Constantly. Then we're proved to be sinners. We need forgiveness. And we need to repent. Idols made by the hands of men can't judge anyone, but the living God will. What was the response of Paul's hearers? And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. It was on that point of the resurrection. It was a, it was a dividing line where people were willing to listen to him until that point. And they said, okay, forget that. I don't believe that. They wouldn't hear it. And that's why we can't neglect this key doctrine. Because without belief in that point, no one can be saved. We must believe that. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, 14, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Verse 17, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Jesus needs to have risen for us to have life and salvation. To be able to repent and have a new life, we need him alive. <laughs> and he has, he is risen indeed. Every day for us is Easter, really, that we serve a risen Lord and a Savior. Some mocked him, some put off the decision, which is a decision to reject Christ. Isn't there lack of rebuttal telling? These are philosophers. They can talk about anything for a long time. Like, do I exist? And then just start talking about that. Write books on it. But after what Paul said, they're like, they mocked him. They said, all right, we'll talk about this later. Or we'll see that some believed. There's no answer for this because he laid out the truth. God's word. Verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. There were some men and women who believed, and one of them was an Areopagite, which is one of the council members who sat there, who had been exposed to every doctrine and every preaching and every religion of the city. The one who made the decisions on this, he was saved. And tradition says that he became the first bishop in Athens, he later died a martyr's death for Christ's sake. So this shows that God's word has the power to open people's eyes from the truth. Even those who are highly, um, let's say, schooled and spent a, a lot of time in academia, they too can be won and bought with the, uh, they can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Philosophy, science, friends, feelings, None of those things can save us. We need the gospel. We need Jesus Christ and his blood to wash us clean. When we repent and trust in him, we can be forgiven and saved. Jesus said in Luke 15, 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. When I had heard that, Probably in my whole life as a child, I always thought as someone who didn't know Jesus and later needed to repent and be saved and come to Jesus. But the context is going after one, one from the fold who had wandered. 
So it's not just talking about the unsaved repenting and being saved. It's talking about Christians, people of his fold. Jesus is the good shepherd. He'll leave the 99 to go after the one. There's rejoicing in heaven, not just when someone's born again. There's rejoicing in heaven when any Christian repents. When a Christian repents, God rejoices over you. There's rejoicing in heaven when you realize, when you you allow the word of God to minister to your heart and you say, I've been wrong about this. I've been doing the wrong thing. I've been thinking the wrong thing. I need that that picture has now been flipped over and I see the truth as if for the first time. I should have known this by now, but I haven't. And I should have been doing the right thing, but I I I haven't seen it as important. But now I God change me. Make me a different person. I put away that sin. It is abominable to me, and I want to do what's right in your sight. Heaven's like, right on. Rejoicing. May heaven rejoice over each one of us today as we repent and praise our awesome God. One of the the main sins that we can be beset by and not not realize is unbelief. It's not believing God's word. Not believing what he has said. We don't believe that we pray, but we just don't think it's really doing much. May the Lord... Show us our unbelief so we might repent and trust him. I want to close with Jude 1, and 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us blameless in your sight through the blood of Jesus, through the gospel. Thank you that you've given us not just a second chance, but new life. Lord, you're so good. You're so faithful, so gracious to us. Thinking about how you command every man everywhere to repent. Lord, show us what we need to repent of. We want you to be rejoicing over us. We want you to be pleased with our worship of you. I pray that you just do a a mighty work in our lives. Help us to believe your word and to be unashamed of your gospel, to be bold to share with us the hope that is in us. We love you, Lord, and are grateful to be called your children, to have your word so accessible to us, to be able to pray and to fellowship together as one. Lord, I pray your blessings upon my brothers and sisters here today and that you would minister and strengthen and enable us to do your will, in Jesus' name, amen.